It's August 12th, 2022, and this is your DSR Daily Brief. I'm Grant Haver. Chris Cottonor is out on special assignment. Our top stories today. Staff at the occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant have described to the BBC being kept at gunpoint while Russian troops use it as a base. Invading forces have occupied the site, the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, since early March. However, it is still operated by Ukrainian technicians. Moscow has recently been accused of using the plant as a shield while its troops launch rockets from there towards nearby locations. Russia is accused of basing about 500 soldiers there, and recent footage has shown military vehicles being driven inside. As if to underline this point, yesterday more shelling was reported. It's amazing to me that there hasn't been a nuclear accident at this point. Between using Zaporizhia as a military base and the way the Russians treated employees in the exclusionary zone around Chernobyl, the threat has been incredibly high. This should be a badge of honor for the hard-working Ukrainians keeping these power plants in working order, but it also reveals the depth of Russian depravity. They don't want Ukraine to join Russia. They want a neutralized Ukraine, and whether that comes on the battlefield, in negotiations, or as a result of a nuclear accident, it doesn't matter to them. South Korea's Justice Ministry, said billionaire Lee Jae-yong, will be reinstated to help the country overcome its economic crisis. The reinstatement came in the form of a presidential pardon earlier this morning. Lee was convicted last year of embezzlement and bribery charges. He was released on parole in August 2021, meaning that the pardon is largely symbolic. Lee, who serves as the vice chairman of Samsung Electronics, vowed to work hard for the national economy, South Korean Yonhap News Agency reported. Samsung is part of a group of family-run businesses which exert significant influence on the South Korean government as they control a vast majority of economic output and were crucial in industrializing the peninsula. Samsung Group's overall turnover is equivalent to about one-fifth of South Korea's gross domestic product. The head of Kenya's government-created media council says local media outlets haven't been asked to stop their counting of presidential election results after observers noticed a dramatic slowdown in reporting on the close contest yesterday. The public posting of results forms was meant to be a groundbreaking exercise in transparency for the Electoral Commission, which has been under pressure after the High Court cited irregularities and overturned the results of the previous presidential election in 2017. The Electoral Commission chair stressed, though, that only the Electoral Commission can declare a winner. The Electoral Commission legally has a week to tally the results. Elsewhere, firefighters from across Europe struggled yesterday 
to contain a massive wildfire in France that has swept through a large swath of pine forest, while Germans and Poles face a mass fish die-off in a river flowing between their countries. Europe is suffering under a severe heat wave and drought that has produced tragic consequences for farmers, devastating consequences for the economy, and even more strain on ecosystems already under threat from climate change and pollution. The drought is causing a loss of agricultural products and other food at a time when supply shortages amid Russia's war against Ukraine have caused inflation to spike. Read about the full effects of the European heat wave in the AP. We have additional insights into the protests that rocked Sierra Leone earlier this week. At least six protesters and six police officers were killed as anti-government protests in Sierra Leone turned violent, according to official and local media reports. What began Wednesday as a peaceful assembly by market women to draw attention to economic hardship descended into clashes between security forces and young men demanding the president resign. Several police stations were burned down and vandalized across the country. A curfew was put in place yesterday from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. with no end date. The curfew seems to have restored calm so far, but without fixing the underlying issues with the economy, tensions will remain just under the surface. In a major blow to China's diplomatic efforts in Europe, Estonia and Latvia quit China's exclusive club for engaging with Central and Eastern countries yesterday amid deepening concerns over Beijing's ties with their archenemy Moscow. Lithuania was the first to walk away last year when the group was styled as the 17 plus 1, now the 14 plus 1, a diplomatic forum in which countries in Eastern and Central Europe sought to find common ground with Beijing. Beijing has not yet commented on these departures. The entire plus-one diplomatic format has been coming under pressure as China has been criticized for playing divide-and-rule games within the EU and Eastern European countries question the economic dividends. Thousands of Brazilians have taken to the streets amid concern President Jair Bolsonaro will try to stay in power even if he loses October's election. Protesters marched in several cities yesterday in defense of democracy over fears the far-right leader would not respect the outcome of the vote. Mr. Bolsonaro has repeatedly sought to discredit Brazil's voting system and he has claimed that electronic voting machines enable cheating because of the absence of a paper trail. The demonstrations came on the same day as a citizen's manifesto was read out and signed by a million Brazilians. The manifesto, inspired by a declaration from 1977 denouncing Brazil's then-dictatorship, warned that the country's democracy was facing great danger. In lighter news, a French freediver broke a world record for the seventh time when he descended to a depth of 393.7 feet. 
Arnaud Gerald was participating in the annual Vertical Blue competition in the Bahamas when he completed the act. Organizers said Gerald finished his dive with a time of 3 minutes and 34 seconds. That's all the news we have for you this week. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. If you have a tip, topic, or correction you'd like to flag for us, please email us at podcasts at thedsrnetwork.com. Members of the DSR Network will receive an evening newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief and bonus weekend briefs. This weekend, I spoke with Tseke Kasambala, Director of Africa Programs at Freedom House, about the recently released U.S. strategy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear some of that conversation. And then go to the DSR Network and become a member to make sure you never miss any of our analysis. If you want more in-depth discussion of these issues, be sure to follow the links in the show notes to read our sources and tune into our sister podcasts on the DSR Network. Stay safe and stay tuned to the DSR Daily Brief. Today, I'm joined by Tseke Kasambala, who is the Director of Africa Programs at Freedom House. Tseke, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Grant. It's a pleasure. Can you give us a sense of how the Biden administration was approaching sub-Saharan Africa before the strategy was released? Well, I think about two years now into the Biden administration, it wasn't quite clear what the strategy was towards Africa and what U.S. government foreign policy was towards Africa. And so it's good to see that two years into the administration, we're finally getting a sense of where the priorities of the U.S. government towards Africa lie. And do you think that's significantly different from where it has played a role in the past? Or do you think it's kind of more of the same? Well, in tone, at least, we are seeing a significant difference. There is a much greater emphasis on this being an equal partnership around common values. There is a much greater emphasis in tone and reflection about past mistakes that previous administrations might have made in their engagement with Africa. And so in tone, at least, we see a difference. But when it comes to the substance, looking at the entire strategy, one can see a continuation of previous administrations' priorities related to Africa, um, the emphasis on security concerns, the emphasis on, on trade and economic opportunities. We can also see the um, continued emphasis to a certain extent on China and now Russia. So in that sense, there's a continuation of previous you know, administration priorities. But in another sense, there's a change in tone There's a recalibration of focus when you look at how there is an increasing focus. Issues that I welcome, certainly welcome in this strategy, related to an emphasis on institutional changes and not necessarily on individual states or governments, a greater emphasis on the people of Africa and the values that they bring. And we haven't seen as much of that in previous administrations, uh, previous U.S. government administration policies. You mentioned the the China-Russia piece. 
that obviously made its way into the strategy, right? The idea that Africa's going to become an arena for great power competition looms really large here in Washington. On the ground there, how much are you concerned that Africa is going to become this sort of tug of war place where China is taking bits of it, the US is taking bits of it, Russia is taking bits of it, and really trampling all of the good work that Freedom House and others have been doing in promoting democracy and human rights on the continent? That's been an ongoing concern and an ongoing discussion that um, are we going to see a return to that kind of Cold War policy that we saw between the Soviet Union and, and the U.S. at the time, which actually saw the U.S. government in many cases supporting African despots such as Mobutu Seseko of Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, in the interests of pursuing U.S. government policies vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. And there are concerns that, that this is what's going to happen and that, you know, these competing interests from China, from Russia, from the U.S. will lead to further entrenching despotic regimes or authoritarian governments in Africa who are seeing an opportunity to play all sides in this and strengthen their grip on power. So certainly there's a concern. But at the same time, I would say that, you know, the U.S. government, and this is articulated in their strategy, brings the stronger values that the African people appreciate, which is around democracy and respectful rule of law and human rights and good governance. And these, these values and the position that the U.S. takes may not, on the surface of it, be appreciated by some of our autocratic leaders, but it's certainly appreciated and valued by the African public and the general public. And this has been shown in various surveys in which, you know, at least 60 percent of Africans talk about democratic values as being a priority, democracy as a priority for them on this continent. So what surprised you about the strategy, something that was in there that you didn't expect or something that was missing that you had hoped for? There weren't too many surprises. I think what I would say is, as I said, I think there were a number of quite positive changes in my view. It was good to see concerns being expressed around addressing the tide of uh, military takeovers that we've seen, the spate of military takeovers we've seen on the continent in the past two years or so in Chad in Guinea, in Mali, also in Sudan. And so to see the U.S. government being quite explicit that they would be putting in a lot of effort in curbing these types of military takeovers, working closely with the African Union and other partners to ensure that you know, we see an end to this, because this is one of the biggest concerns for us, this return to the military takeovers that we saw in the 1970s that caused a lot of chaos and havoc and led to a lot of violence, killings of civilians and citizens, and displacement throughout the continent. So that was, I think, a major one for me. I think I should also talk about the emphasis, as I said, on on institutional support, greater emphasis on supporting the independence of the judiciary and independent judiciary systems on the continent as a way of ensuring respect for the rule of law and opening up society. I think that was a pleasant and positive Surprised to see the the U.S. government really emphasizing that, that we're not going to just work with governments, but we are going to put in more support and efforts to support strengthening of institutions, because that is a longer term game that leads to more sustainable democracy. So the shorter term gains that we, I think, have seen 
in previous administrations' relationships to Africa and addressing democracy and human rights seem to have been placed on the back burner in this case. And there's a greater emphasis on the longer-term gains that can be had from investment in institutions, as one example. There's also a greater emphasis on working with civil society partners and local communities in peace building, something that I think is really important in addressing the wider issues of insecurity and conflict and transitional justice on the continent. That was Tseke Kasambala, Director of Africa Programs at Freedom House. If you want to listen to the rest of our conversation, be sure to become a member today. Thanks, and we'll see you on Monday.